the important thing is get your attention on finding out what you most love to do. That's the key question that leads you to your genius. I started asking myself that, well, probably now close to 35 years ago. And I'll tell you, it changed everything because I started finding at the time that I was doing what I love to do about 10% of my time. That was a shocking realization. And so I started working up, you know, first 30%, then 50%, then 70%. And, but for the last 20 years or so, pretty much everything I do is on the genius spiral because I just don't do anything else. If somebody asks me to do something else, I look at it and I say, no, that's not in my genius. And so the more things you say no to that are not in your genius, the more you get focused on what your genius really is. Today's guest is one of the world's leading experts on creating radical transformation, Dr. Gay Hendricks. Gay is the best-selling author of over 40 books and together with his wife, has been a featured expert on Oprah, CNN, and hundreds of other platforms. After getting a PhD from counseling psychology from Stanford University, he has spent the last 40 years teaching people how to break through limiting beliefs, live more consciously, and make the big leaps that we so often dream about. So, Gay, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be with you. I'm super excited to have you. And so to set the stage for this conversation, I want to start with the upper limit problem because I think this is such a powerful idea that when our listeners hear this, they're really going to be hit hard to the core of their being because it is such a fundamental key to understanding what's limiting you in your life. So can you take us back for a moment to the time you first observed this in yourself at, at Stanford? Yes, I found that I would get to a certain level of success or, or first I noticed it just with feeling good inside. I would get to a certain level of feeling good and then I would do something to make myself not feel as good. You know, like I would eat healthily for four or five days and I'd be feeling great. And then on the weekend I'd eat an extra large pizza. And so um, I, I put a name to it though on this one particular occasion. I was feeling really good, and then I started having worry thoughts about my daughter, who was at the time about five or six years old, and she was going to a sleepover camp where she was going to spend two nights away from home for the first time. And so um, I had just taken her to the camp, and so it was her first day there. And so I came back from lunch, and I was feeling really good, and I was excited about the work I was doing. And then all of a sudden, I started worrying about Amanda and I started feeling bad. And I thought, okay, well, maybe something's going on with her. Maybe she's feeling lonely or something like that. And so I called the, um, the camp, which was only about 10 miles away. And I said to the uh, director of the camp, I just wanted to find out how Amanda was doing. I was worried a little bit about her, thought she might be lonely or that kind of thing. She's away from town, uh, home from the first time. And, and so the director of the camp. She was a lovely lady and she was very sweet. She said, you know, Dr. Hendricks, you're the third parent that's called this morning with something similar like that. And she said, I just want to let you know that it's normal when your child goes away that you have feelings about it, not necessarily your daughter, because she said, I can see Amanda. She's out in the field kicking a soccer 
ball around with a bunch of other girls. And so I think she's doing just fine. So maybe it's you. And so I started, I, I first of all, I thought, thought that was a great insight. And after I hung up the phone, I started thinking, now, why would I start worrying if there was actually nothing to be worried about? It's one thing if you worry about something, you know, and there's something realistic to worry about. Like if your child is going swimming in a pond that has alligators in it, by yeah. all means, worry about that, you know. <laughs> but I was worrying for no good reason. I started realizing I have an upper limit on how good I allow myself to feel. And when I exceed that upper limit, I do something to knock myself back down to the more familiar level. And it was like a light came on. And I begin to notice this in all sorts of situations, like with feeling good, like, uh, you know, like I mentioned, eat well for a few days and then, and then, or exercise for a few days and then do nothing for a while. So I started noticing it also in my relationship I was in, that things would be going along really for a few days and then one of us would criticize the other one and we would be off on a cycle of conflict with each other. And so I started thinking about that and applying it to all sorts of areas of life. And as it happened, this was in the 1970s at the time when Silicon Valley was happening, beginning to happen all around us where we were at Stanford there because all of those original you know, people like uh, Hewlett Packard and Steve Jobs and his partner and all of those kind of folks were right there in that area. And so I was working at the counseling clinic there at Stanford as part of my internship. And so I saw a lot of these executives that would come in and I started working with high tech executives and I found that they had exactly the same kind of problem. They would get to a certain level of feeling good or marital success or relationship success, and then they do something to knock themselves back down. Or like one of the first times I really noticed it was I was working with an executive and he had a big breakthrough at work and then immediately went home that night and created this huge conflict with his wife. So he had a, a moment and then he couldn't sustain that even for 12 hours. He went home and torpedoed the whole thing. And when he called me up the next day, he was feeling terrible. So I, I began to notice this and apply this. And the more I talked about it, the more people said, yeah, oh, I yeah. recognize that. And as I've traveled around the world to Germany or New Zealand or Egypt or wherever I've happened to give speeches in the world, I've been to something like 80 countries now giving talks about the big leap and conscious loving and the other things that uh, we're interested in here. Um, I've noticed it's the same thing all over the world. So it's nothing that's particular to Americans or Europeans or anybody else that we all seem to have these glass ceilings on how much we can experience. And if we exceed that, we knock ourselves back down. So I put my attention on figuring out why we did that. And that's what led me eventually to write The Big Leap because I figured out a number of reasons we do that. And as I began to talk about that, that's where my book, The Big Leap came from. Yeah, you know, this is so fascinating. I really wanna dive deeper into, you know, what really causes people to do that. But do you think like this upper limit problem is also why people, when they set these New Year's resolutions, these huge goals for themselves, right? And they're so motivated for like three days, right? They go to the gym, they like feel like I'm gonna make this happen. And then all of a sudden, the self-sabotage kicks in. All of a the sudden, they you know, stop going to the gym. All of a the sudden, they get sick. All of a the sudden, they 
just don't feel good anymore. Is that also part of that reason? Yes. And what happens is the specific reason for it is if you have a breakthrough to feeling better or to having a really good intimate connection in your relationship or you have a success at work, it often stirs up old fears that go way back into childhood that are often not just with parents, but with brothers and sisters. There are these different things at play. Like, for example, a lot of people think there's something fundamentally wrong with themselves. They're fundamentally bad in some way. And so when they have something happen that's good, their mind says, well, this can't happen to you because you're not a good person. And so they find some way to get sick or have an accident or knock themselves back down to, a, to the place where they used to be. So one of them is that fear that, I'm, that there's something wrong, deep fundamentally wrong with me. And a surprising number of people go around carrying that. I live in Southern California, so I work occasionally with people who are well-known in movies or music or something, you know, recognizable faces and everything. And you'd think that folks like that who are wealthy and famous would be immune from this problem. But I can tell you they almost have it worse because they'll have a success. And if they do carry around that old, I'm not worthy feeling, they will find some spectacular way to mess it up. And so no matter where we are in life, we have to keep our eye on, why am I doing this to myself? Another reason people do it is because of another fear, another fear of what I call outshining. So in other words, some of us carry around a fear of that if I really let myself shine and let myself fulfill my true potential, somehow that would detract from other people. In other words, the, the th faulty thinking is, if I shine, somehow it has to make you shine less. But I found that to be exactly the opposite. If you let it be okay to go ahead and shine and let it be okay to let other people shine because of you. In other words, my shining helps you release your shining. And so that's what I think we all want is to let our full potential be on display in the world. So we're doing what we love to do and also getting good feedback from doing it. I know that's what I put my attention on for the past 30 or 40 years and it, uh, it works really, really well because a lot of us go around thinking negatively about what we don't want to happen and don't get our minds particularly focused on what we do want to happen. Yes, that's so true. So once we begin to analyze those, you know, fears, upper limit problems, how do people then begin to change them? So once I'm aware of, for example, you know, and I have this feel of outshining people, I know that like, I, I feel like there's something fundamentally flawed, like I don't deserve the success or the happiness that I have. How do people then begin to change those internal dialogues? Well, with what I call a series of 10 second miracles, and I'll describe a 10 second miracle to you. By the way, I have a book by that name. So uh, uh, just in case people want to go look exactly at what I'm talking about. But for example, here's one of the 10 second miracles I teach people. I've taught this to the CEO of Fortune 50 companies and I've taught this to traumatized children in a war zone. But here it is, a 10 second miracle. Take one breath that takes five seconds in and five seconds out. Now, let me model that for you. In, two, three, four, five, out, two, three, four, five. So like this.
It seems simple, but let me tell you why that works. One of the first systems that gets thrown off when we get under stress, stress is our breathing system. So if you're under stress or feeling a lot of fear or feeling a lot of anger or feeling a lot of grief that you don't know what to do with, what happens is your breathing over escalates. It, it goes shorter and sharper and faster than it needs to. And that throws off the chemistry in your breathing so that you don't feel good. You feel kind of anxious or you feel like you're not quite there or you feel like a little mental fog. So it's that off-center feeling. And so the quick correction for that is to take one big 10-second breath. The reason is because if you slow your breathing down, it quiets the stress chemistry in your body. And so the fastest way we've found to kind of pop people out of a stress syndrome is to have them do three 10-second miracles three 10 second breaths, in other words. And we recommend three because it, one will begin to change your body chemistry a little bit, but within three 10 second breaths, your body chemistry begins to quiet down very quickly. Your body doesn't produce stress hormones when your breathing is slow and easy. And so as quickly as possible, you wanna slow that breathing down and particularly take that nice 10 second round trip of breathing all the way in and all the way out. You know, it sounds simple, but the reason it works so well is because when people get scared, they hold their breath, usually at the top, they go and they lock their breath in that fight or flight position. And so the way the antidote to that is to take a few easy, slow breaths. So that's one thing that you can always do. I've taught that, uh, like I mentioned, in the uh, Dell computer boardroom, you know, with this big desk that must have seated 50 people. Well, and I've also taught that to school children that were having trouble with some kind of stress event in school. And it's based on a simple physiological principle. That's the reason it works across all sorts of cultures. So the first antidote to fear is breathing. Listen up, everybody. The first thing you want to do to quell your fear, to ease up your fear, to lessen your fear, is to take a few easy breaths. I don't know if you had this experience when you were a kid. Um, I, um, where I, I grew up in Florida, and oftentimes you keep your windows, all your windows open at night because it's hot. Yeah. And at that time, very few people had air conditioning. And so you'd lie there. <laughs> you know. I was studying there for four years, I know, yeah. Oh, you were in Florida? Yeah, Fort Myers. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and not only that, but the mosquitoes weren't that oh, yes. great either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> although Germany has some pretty big mosquitoes too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I would sleep with my windows open, but then late at night, a... Uh, a breeze might stir, start stirring and it would make the curtains blow. And so when I was a little boy, I would wake up and I would see the curtains blowing and it looked like some kind of monster or something. But my older brother came up with a solution. He gave me a little pen light. And he said, when you wake up, if you think it's a monster, just shine the light on it and you'll see that it's just a shadow. And so it only took one time, you know, I woke up and I was scared and I, and I reached over and I got that little pen light and I shone it up there and I, oh, okay, 
it disappeared. The monster disappeared by getting a light shined on it. Wow. And so the same thing with breathing. We need to get the light of our awareness into our bodies, and that can be easily done using your breathing as a searchlight and a tool. You know, I absolutely love this, right? Because it really is this, this biochemical response in your body and brain, right? Which makes, means that it works for everybody, right? And there's a super cool quote that I know you're aware of by Fritz Perls, who said, fear is excitement without the breath. And I, I love that, right? Because it is that breathing that allows us to transform the fear into excitement and, you know, calm again. So, you know, once people have done those, you know, three 10 second miracles, they've done the breathing, what can they do to, you know, not fall back sort of into those old patterns? Like, are there any, you know, mindsets, any affirmations that you use? One mindset is to approach life as one long series of lessons that you need to learn. Some of them may be ba based on past events, like, you know, maybe because you got bit by a dog once or you got bit in a marriage, you may not want to get married or <laughs> again. Uh, so there are real life events like that, but a lot of events are just things you need to learn in the present. Like when I got in my first serious relationship um, as an adult with a woman, I really didn't know anything about how to communicate. I hadn't studied psychology or anything like that. I was an English major in college and I got into psychology the hard way in a way by finding I kept making one mistake after the other in my close relationships and wondering why. And that led me into psychology and then wow. into counseling people. And so my first customer, though, was myself. You know, I always say that uh, there's a Turkish saying that if a bald man finds a cure, he will first use it on himself. And so I found these cures and I began to use them on myself. And that led me into writing books about it. And so, but the thing is that, um, as a little boy, I learned that there were these simple, natural things we could do. And that led me to start playing around always with what is the simplest possible thing we can do. Einstein had that great quote. He said, you need to come up with the simplest possible explanation. Not too simple, but it's the simplest possible one. And for me, using your own natural body uh, capabilities is the important thing to do first. Here's a second 10-second miracle you can do. We always say here that all problems boil down to a 10-second truth somebody isn't telling. Wow. So we have relationship counseling here that goes on where two people might come to us like a lot of people come to us from other countries so they come here to work with us for a couple of days and they stay at a hotel and um, nearby and so sometimes they've been fighting about the same problem for 20 or 30 years i'm not kidding wow. you know i think the last time i was working with a couple they'd been fighting about a very similar kind of thing for pretty much the whole 30 years of their marriage and they never found a solution to it. And here's why. Because they hadn't told the 10-second truth that was underneath the problem. It could be a simple thing like, I'm afraid you're going to leave me. That takes 10 seconds to say that. Or I've had an affair with another woman. 10 seconds it takes to say that. But you would be surprised, like we had a, a couple here 
that had been married for many, many years, but they'd been fighting pretty much for the past 12 years of the marriage. And so finally, they got tired of having that same argument and came here. And again, a 10 second truth was underneath it. The 10 second truth was uh, on his part was, I've been having an affair with my secretary for the past 12 Whoa. years. And so, but here's the interesting thing. He had had something like a hundred chiropractic treatments on his back and he'd had a couple of hundred massages and he was on the point, he'd had such back pain that he was at the point of wanting to do um, spinal fusion therapy where they actually glue and keep the spine from moving in certain areas. Fortunately, he came and did uh, his relationship work before that because it was related to his back pain. As soon as he revealed that secret about what he'd been doing for the past 12 years, his back pain went away and never returned. And so what he was doing was punishing himself for 12 years for having that affair. And he was punishing himself, keeping himself from enjoying it thoroughly with the continuous upper limit problem of the back pain. See how that works? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, especially that like you have these physical symptoms even when when the emotions are, are sort of out of whack, right? When, you, when you're beating yourself up, when you have those fears, those insecurities, when you're not being authentic in your relationships, that it can actually show up in your physical body. And, and then this, this also seems like the, the real challenge for people is just being authentic. Like it, it seems like the, you know, most people are struggling with, at, you know, at the level of superficiality, right? Where like they're staying on top of these problems, but they're not willing to communicate the deeper issues and deeper insecurities and feelings. Is that what I'm hearing out of it? Yes, you're hearing exactly what I'm saying. That's right. And we need to keep it simple and we need to keep it body oriented because a lot of the things we're talking about, you can't think your way out of them rationally because yeah. if you could, you would have already done so. <laughs> if you knew a way to get out of the problem by thinking, you would have already done it. So thinking at a certain point becomes futile because you have to make that, what I call the longest 12 inch journey in the world from your head to your heart. <laughs> this little journey here sometimes takes people 75 years to make it. I've literally met and worked with people who it wasn't until they had a sudden illness and were on their deathbed that they finally realized that they needed to tell the truth about certain things or they needed wow. to face certain things that, um, that were outstanding and incomplete in their lives. So we need to keep it centered down inside where we can actually make some of the changes. It's good to change your thought patterns. It's good to change your beliefs, but the real work needs to be done under the neck, beneath the neck. Yeah, for sure. And it seems like all of this comes back to really consciously living, to becoming aware of who we really are and what we stand for, right? And what we really like feel deep down inside. Yes. And you touched on, you said the word authenticity a while back. And that's so important because to be authentic, to be real in this moment changes everything. Like for example, I've been married to Katie now for uh, 40 years. We just, uh, or I've, I've known her for 40 years. We, we just had our 38th wedding anniversary. Wow. But I met her actually 40 years ago last month. And yeah. so I've had this magical more than half my life of being <laughs> with this amazing woman. But it wasn't always easy. When we got together, we were both dragging in baggage with us from other relationships. And 
you know, I was 34 when I met her, so I'd had a series of relationships that hadn't worked very well. I'd never had one that did work very well, as a matter of fact. And here's why. About a year into our relationship, this was in the days before cell phones, by the way. So she was late coming home one Friday night. And she normally would get home about seven o'clock from where she had her office on the other side of town. And one night, seven o'clock went, 7.30 went, 7.45. Finally, she got there closer to eight. And when she came in the door, I started immediately, where, where have you been? You know, If I'd been using my brain properly, which I wasn't, I could have seen that she had two bags of groceries. <laughs> but I was so caught up in my critical thing that I started yamma, yamma, yamma on her before I caught myself and said, oh, let me help you. And, but here's the thing, I realized at that moment, I tuned into myself and I realized, oh, I'm scared. I'm criticizing her like I'm angry, but what I am is scared. And I realized, wow, how often do I be angry at somebody when I'm actually scared? That was a huge moment of transformation for me. And I remember just stopping in the moment. And she said, what's going on? And I said, I told her this. I said, I'm realizing that I was criticizing you like I was irritated with you. But I, what I feel down in my belly is fear, anxiety, scare. And she said, oh, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, oh, I, I'm afraid of losing you. Wow. When you weren't here, it must have triggered some old thing, you know. And I realized, oh, afterwards, it was the upper limit problem because we were getting closer. We'd gotten, you know, we'd worked out some of our stuff in the first year of our relationship and we were getting closer and closer and closer. And I think it flushed up these old ancient fears of mine. And then I projected them onto the relationship because I remember standing there on the stairs, just breathing my way into that fear. And it was incredibly powerful because it disappeared like that. And then boom, we were totally close again. And so I think that one of the one of the most important messages that I pass along when I'm giving talks about relationship or breathing or whatever is get comfortable talking about what you're afraid of because you find that talking about what you're angry about only gets you so far in a relationship because if you think about it, the, the places where we store angry anger are farther up in the body, like our jaws and the back of our neck and our, you know, hunching our shoulders and squeezing our fists and that kind of thing. So the mechanisms of anger are further up in our body, whereas things like sadness are further down in our body and things like fear are more down in the center of us, like the butterflies you feel in your stomach and, and that kind of thing. So don't get caught just communicating the anger stuff really get underneath that. In fact, one of our clients said that one thing completely saved their marriage because he was used to popping off angry at his wife all the time and criticizing her. And after I pointed this out to him that he was actually scared and showed him how to communicate fear, he said it changed overnight. <laughs> you know what I love about this is like you say, like oftentimes it is just this awareness that is necessary, right? To understand that like, hey, what's actually triggering me here is not that the other person messed something up. It's that I'm deeply scared of something. It's that I'm deeply, you know, scared of being authentic, of throwing my true self. And what I found is that like anytime I, you know, connect with people on this level where I'm 
willing to show like who I really am, willing to tell them basically my worst kind of fears and my worst insecurities, it brings us so much closer together. I totally agree. And I've seen that miracle. We've counseled, I think, 4,500 or so couples now uh, over the past uh, 40 years. Uh, we actually saw our first clients the very first summer we were together uh, oh, wow. as, uh, as co-therapists. So we've been literally working together now for 40 years. Um, but one of the very first couples uh, we saw was a couple that had, um, they were very estranged. They hadn't, she hadn't had an orgasm in seven years. Whoa. And so we worked with them to find out why. And it turned out she had not communicated something important several seven years before and had gradually kind of grown a scab around that, you know, a, 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 a place where a wound doesn't quite heal. And so once we had them out that to each other, whoosh, she went home that night. She had her first orgasm in seven years. Something like that makes you re be a real believer in the power of authentic communication because nothing happened except they communicated something from this place right here and it changed everything. And so you gotta, to me, after 4,500 couples, I've come to see the power of those 10 second moments of communication where you really risk to share who you really are. But it's ultimately satisfying because, you know, in life, unless you really love yourself as you are and present yourself as you really are, nothing really works well in life. Yes, for sure. And so talking about presenting yourself as you really are, I want to dive deeper into the zone of genius, you know, this magical place where we just in flow and you know everything seems to be working out the way we want. So can you talk to us about you know why it's so important to access this zone of genius on a daily basis? It has nurturing value to it. It's like like your favorite food times ten. <laughs> uh, what what's one of your favorite foods you like to eat? Oh, I love pizza. I love it. Okay, pizza. me too. I love pizza. If you're ever in Ojai, California, uh, we have a fabulous pizza place here. And uh, I go get it almost every Sunday. I, uh, I allow myself one a week. That's my powerful <laughs> self-discipline. Uh, but so think of your favorite pizza, but think of the essence of that. That's not food, but it's what it really does for you. It's, it, in, it expands your senses. It opens your taste buds. You know, it opens your smell sensation. And so what, we're, what we think is important in life is having that experience every day, not just in the realm of food. We think you should eat what you love to eat. But more than that, we think you should do what you most love to do because that's your, your genius, what we call now your genius spiral. Once you get on your genius spiral, you just keep going up and up and up and up. So. The important thing is get your attention on finding out what you most love to do. That's the key question that leads you to your genius. I started asking myself that, well, probably now close to 35 years ago. And I'll tell you, it changed everything because I started finding at the time that I was doing what I love to do about 10% of my time. That was a shocking realization. And so I started working up, you know, first 30%, then 50%, then 70%. And 
And, but for the last 20 years or so, pretty much everything I do is on the genius spiral because I just don't do anything else. If somebody asks me to do something else, I look at it and I say, no, that's not in my genius. And so the more things you say no to that are not in your genius, the more you get focused on what your genius really is. So this is part of my genius, what we're doing right now. And I can do it all day long. I've been doing it for half my life now. And I'm just as excited about it now as I was when I first started talking about it because I see the power of it. So to me, we should all go looking in earnest for the things that really matter to you. What's most important? I narrowed it down to just a few things in my life that are absolutely most important that that's where I place my focus. So I think everybody needs to get in the process of doing that. You know, I love that I can feel your energy in this and, and I'm just the same way. So the reason I started this podcast book is because this is my zone of genius, right? This is the thing that I love more than anything else, right? I can just feel myself smiling the whole time through this interview because I'm enjoying it so much. And so how do people, you know, once you, once they, you know, understand like, Hey, this is my zone of genius, right? This is the thing that I just love. How do you begin to really spread yourself and, you know, make more time for that on a daily basis? Cause the fear of find oftentimes in people is like, well, I'm not being paid for it yet. Right. Or like, I don't, I don't have enough time, right? There's not enough time in a day. How do people make more time and really, you know, manage to fit that in into their schedule on a daily basis? Yes. Well, here we teach people to do it 10 minutes at a time. First thing we have people do is go in a room by themselves for 10 minutes. This is highly recommend to all your listeners and viewers. Go into a room by yourself for 10 minutes and sit there and simply wonder about the question, hmm, what is my true genius? Hmm, what is my true genius? The reason I'm humming is because it's a sign of wonder. Hmm, you go, hmm, if you really don't know, but you're really interested. So ask yourself that question, be with that question. What is my genius? What do I most love to do? And then start adding 10 minutes of that at a time. So just start every day by setting aside 10 minutes. Everybody can find 10 minutes somewhere. Put it in your calendar. That's what we have people do here for the first week. Put the 10 minutes a day in your calendar. Then the next week we invite people to go to 20 minutes. And then we ask people to go to 30 minutes. So build it up 10, chunk, uh, 10 minute chunks at a time until finally you're, you know, 20 years later, you're doing that all day long. Yeah, the beautiful thing about it is that hopefully it is not even hard to do it, right? Because you actually enjoyed intrinsically that process of doing it. So just like eating that pizza for us, right? It's something that we could, you know, do all day long, quote unquote. <laughs> because it yeah, gives you I, You know, it's interesting talking about this because I just got the galley proofs to my new book that won't be out until uh, wow. April, uh, Conscious Luck. And um, it's kind of the next step beyond The Big Leap, my book, The Big Leap, uh, because uh, in the years since The Big Leap, I identified eight things that actually contribute to making your luck better. And so they're in the book. And so I want to... Um, um, let people know that they, they can go to the Conscious Luck website and get on the list to get the first chapter of it when it starts getting published and everybody will get one for free. And a lot of the key information is in the first chapter. So um, go to ConsciousLuck.com and uh, uh, sign up for that. Fantastic. Gonna, gonna link to that as well. Now, you have this really cool quote that says, creativity is the antidote to addiction. 
So can yes. you talk to us about that? Yes. I've worked with many, many people who have addictions, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I used to be really fat. Um, I, was, I had some gland problems when I was a, a kid. I was really fat as a little boy, but I couldn't get it off ever until I was 24 years old, and I had a kind of a moment of enlightenment. Um, uh, on another occasion, I'll tell you all about that, but just the bottom line is I changed my life radically when I was 24 and uh, went on kind of a... Uh, a consciousness diet where I only ate foods that I'd never eaten before for a year, like fruits and vegetables, things that I never touched. And I lost more than a hundred pounds. And so now, you know, for the last bunch of you know, decades, I weigh about 180 pounds and um, I'm six, a little over six feet tall. So uh, I look more like an athlete than I do like a, a chubby person anymore. So, but um, the reason I mentioned that is because in life, we are all given certain things to deal with. For one person, I was just uh, watching this thing about stuttering because one of our presidential candidates, Joseph Biden, has overcome a life of stuttering. And he now is a U.S. senator. Wow, you know? I didn't so, know that. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we always say, if you find something that you don't like about yourself, instead of hiding it, paint it red. In other words, make a thing out of it and talk about it. I, I give you an example. When I wrote my first book, I was only 30 years old and I wasn't good at speaking in public. And right away, I got invited to give a speech to a professional audience of about 150 people on, the, on my new book. And so I went to give my speech on my new book. And afterwards, you know, I got a nice round of applause and everything. And afterwards, this guy came up to me and he said, you know, I really liked what you had to say. It wasn't exactly the content, but it was how you said it. And I said, oh, what do you mean? And he said, oh, well, your voice shakes just as badly as mine does when I try to speak in public. <laughs> it wasn't exactly the compliment I'd been hoping for, you know, but it was very instructive because I realized, oh, that's interesting. I'm scared. So I went I got on an airplane and I flew to another place in Berkeley. I mean, I flew to Berkeley, California from Kansas City where I was gonna do another talk on my new book to an even bigger audience this time. And so I was in a big auditorium there at the University of California at Berkeley. And I, I went to give my speech and I started out and I told that story. I said, if you hear my voice shaking, let me tell you, it's probably better than the other day because let me tell you the story that just happened in Kansas City. And I told him the story and the audience just roared and clapped and everything like that, you know, because I wasn't hiding. Yeah. You know, I said, look, until about a month ago when my book accidentally hit the bestseller list and surprised the publisher and me too, I said, I was an assistant professor at the University of Colorado teaching classes of counseling students 25 at a time, you know, and now, <laughs> so um, it was my first um, attempt to overcome the upper limit problem by painting my, my uh, problem red and showing it for all the world to see. You know, I love that story so much. In fact, like a huge reason for why I started this podcast, because for almost my entire life until about one and a half years ago. So I was deathly afraid of talking to people. Like even when it was my family or my best friends, I was so afraid. And so I said, 
okay, I'm gonna, like you say, literally paint this red. I'm gonna show it to the entire world how, you know, the first couple of episodes, my voice was trembling, I was, you know, sweating, and my heart was beating. But like, that is the process, like you say, of learning to face those things over and over and over again, and then get used to it. So I absolutely love that story. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, that's why I say we've got to approach life as one long learning opportunity after another, that uh, it's not just about overcoming problems from your past. It's like opening up to what are the lessons I need to learn right now and going after those. Yes, for sure. Now, we talked about a lot of strategies, a lot of ideas today. If you could give our listeners just one thing that they can take away from this to really apply and overcome their upper limit problem, what would be that one thing? Put two 10-second miracles together. One 10-second miracle is just take a couple of those 10-second breaths, five seconds in, five seconds out, just a big, round, connected breath, and then use a second 10-second miracle and ask yourself, what is the essential thing about this that I need to communicate? Because a powerful 10-second miracle is to simply say the thing that you haven't been saying. So put those two things together and you have a very powerful tool. Absolutely love that. Now, before I ask my final question, where can listeners connect with you online? A couple of good places. One is our regular website, which is hendricks.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. And then go look at our relationship work at heartsinharmony.com, heartsinharmony.com. Perfect. Now my final question, what is your quest for greatness? So what's that big vision that you want to bring into the world? I want to bring into the world the possibility that life and relationships can be incredibly simple and easy if you do certain basic things, like remember to breathe, remember to tell the truth, remember to make meaningful commitments to each other. And life gets insanely complicated when you forget to do those simple things. So when life gets complicated, recalibrate yourself. Take a few seconds, a few minutes to get back in touch with your breath, get back in touch with the essential truths that are hidden right in this voice box of ours and uh, expand your ability all the time, one upper limit at a time.